Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. My name is Dave. If you're newer to our church, I serve here as lead pastor. And though we touched on the book of Psalms on the first Sunday of the year, this morning we're diving headfirst into our series on the book of Psalms. Now, many of you may recall that I spent 26 weeks in the book of Ephesians, and Psalms has 150 chapters. And so, rest assured, I have no intention of diving into all 150 Psalms. It's going to be a highlight reel of selected Psalms that I believe help us see the full spectrum of what the Psalms intend to communicate and share with us. Since there are 150, um, we will either pick individual psalms or we will pick certain themes that appear across multiple psalms and we'll touch on those. And the thing to remember when it comes to the psalms is that the psalms are spiritual poetry. Many of them were intended to be sung to a musical tune, and so psalms should be approached more like song lyrics than like sermons. That's important. I don't know if you've ever read certain song lyrics that in the moment really expressed what a person's heart was feeling. But if you really pressed in and said, do these lyrics perfectly describe reality or teach us something about life? Maybe you can't press it too far because a lot of times um, when you're expressing feelings, you're expressing them in exaggeration. You're saying things as if they're always true, but they're not always true. They're just really true for you right now. It feels as if the whole world is like this, even though you can't argue that the whole world is like this. Do you ever get annoyed when your world is falling apart and you see happy people smiling and laughing at a restaurant and you're like, you know, that feeling of bitterness. And you realize that while the rest of the world is moving on, it feels to you like the whole world is falling apart. Can you relate to that? I I know I can, and I think all of us can relate to that. And so that's why when we approach the Psalms, we want to keep very closely in mind what these spiritual poems are, what their intent is. The primary purpose of the Psalms is not to describe reality or teach doctrine. The primary purpose of the Psalms is to give vent to the expression of the heart, whether it's in worship or in complaint, or in frustration, or doubt, or anger. The full spectrum of human emotions is on display, but the primary purpose is not to teach us something. It is to let us eavesdrop on the pouring out of a heart. That doesn't mean there's no truth in the Psalms. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of rich theology contained in the Psalms, but that's not their primary purpose, is to teach something. It is to let us listen in on the cry of a heart, and either join in or reflect thoughtfully on what we're hearing. Now, as we dive into the Psalms, because God is one of these these gods who is very secure, he allows us not to sugarcoat things. He lets us tell him what's really on our hearts, and he can handle it. And as a result, in the Psalms, you get a lot of really raw stuff. I'll be honest, I I struggle on a number of psalms with whether or not we should preach on them because they're so bitter. (laughs) 
They're so angry. They're so like, kill all my enemies. Kill them real bad. Kill them so that they're, they're more dead than dead. And then I will dance on their graves. That's the feeling of a lot of the Psalms. And like, that's a little rough. But I think every one of us has felt that way at some point in our lives too. And so because we see such raw emotions being expressed, it's very easy to get sucked into those human emotions and get all wrapped up in them and identify with them and miss another important point. And that is that the vast majority of the Psalms were directly addressed to God. They're not just poems about us. They are poems to God. Just like many of our praise songs are not just about how we feel, but we're singing them to God and not just to one another, right? And so that's the nature of a lot of the Psalms. And so I want to begin launching into this series with Psalm 8. Because Psalm 8 reminds us who this God is to whom these honest songs and poems are addressed. Because if you don't have that in the front of your mind, you'll go really off the rails when you start reading some of these things. Though he permits an honest and full expression of our hearts, we should never forget who he is as we bring these feelings to him. I think that's one of the things that's being lost in Christianity today is we're becoming very in touch with ourselves and very out of touch with God. And I hope that this series and this message in particular will at least nudge us as a corrective back in the direction of acknowledging who our God is and what he's like. So I want to explore several things that this particular psalm reveals to us about what God is like. The first is that our God wants us to know him. Listen to this. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, which no one really is sure what that is. It might be a song or an instrument or something, but it's a musical cue And just like today, I have no clue about music, so I don't know what that means. Nor does anyone else, so. According to the Gittith, a psalm of David. So it's King David to whom this particular psalm is ascribed. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Have you ever looked up at the night sky a little farther away from the city, out in the country or in the wilderness, and looked at the sky and seen the stars. And I'm not talking about just glancing. I'm talking about sitting maybe for an hour and gazing at the stars. I have two very memorable occasions when I did that. 
Uh, one of them was when, in the first few years of our, our church, I was leading our college group, and that was like half our church. And we went on this camping trip to the tri-state area near Galena, where three states meet, and it's right off the banks of the Mississippi. And I sat on this little bluff overlooking the river, and we sat out there from like, I think, 11 at night to 1 in the morning. We were camping, but nobody wanted to go in because there was no ambient light, and the stars were just shining. And you stood out there for an hour, and more and more stars would become visible. You could see satellites streaking across the sky. I had another similar experience like that in Cape Coast, um, in Ghana, right off the, the edge of the water, looking at the sky and seeing just thousands of stars light up the sky. I, I don't know if you've ever seen a night sky where if you stay long enough, you see that, and it starts to change the way you feel. There's an almost, at, at least this was my experience, maybe it's been that way for you, uh, almost an overwhelming or oppressive sense of bigness when you look at the night sky. And some people look at that night sky and it strikes terror or it brings about a really dark feeling because when they look at that massive expanse of space, all they see is a cold, nameless, faceless indifference looking back at them. That's not what our psalmist sees when he looks up at the heavens. And I, I really marvel at this because this is a guy who's living way before even the most rudimentary telescopes were an idea. And he says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And that's an interesting phrase right there, above the heavens, because it, it has to do with even, even everything I see out there. And he sensed there was something out there. And he said, God is so great, he's even above all of that, that even this vast expanse cannot contain him. You know, I've been sharing with a, a handful of people that this year, one of my resolutions has been to pick up art again. Art was such an important part of my childhood, and I loved drawing and making things when I was younger. And then for about 20 years, I did absolutely zip when it came to art. Now, I'm one of those guys that I, I can spend a week solid in the Art Institute of Chicago, and my family will never stick around with me past the first hour. But I love it there. And so this year, I decided enough's enough. I'm going to return to art, and I'm going to pick it up. And the way I started was not by doing art. I needed, and this is just the way I'm wired, I need to get my juices flowing. I need to get inspired. So I watched dozens of YouTube videos of skilled artists making things. And I'm not just talking about drawing. It was sculpting, jewelry making, everything. I mean, pottery. I just wanted to watch good, skilled artisans do their craft. And it began to inspire me. And I saw so many things that I'll never, I'll never make jewelry, all right? I just, one of those things I can promise you I'm never going to do. But watching people make jewelry is fascinating and strangely satisfying. I watched three videos of a guy making rings out of old coins. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? But it got me going. And here's what I learned about that. When I see an artist who has a level of skill that, you know, the kind of skill that makes you a little almost scared. You're like, what species is he? 
Where, what planet did she come from? How can a person do this? Here's what I noticed. Though I look at their finished work and I'm in awe, my awe is not really directed at the artwork. It's directed at the artist. The artwork is a product. It's a creation. It's something made. It's not like I go painting. Good job. Coming into existence. Awesome. How did you do that? What I say instead is that's unbelievable. Who can do things like that? He turned me on to an artist named Kim Jung-gi a couple years ago, and he has become something like an obsession. And he actually frightens me. Right? I mean, it's not just skill. There's something almost alien going on there in his ability to draw and create worlds on the fly. No sketching, no, just with a brush pen. He's going straight. And it's like watching worlds come into being. And it frightens me a little. And when I see his finished works, they are marvelous. They're wall-length murals of hand-drawn pictures. But what even more strikes awe is that a person can produce something like that, and I can't fully fathom or identify with that kind of skill. See, this is what David sees when he looks in the night sky. He doesn't see a faceless, nameless, cold indifference. He sees a glorious creation. And then he says, when I look throughout the earth, see the animals and the different landscapes, and as a king, he would have seen more of the world than about 99% of the people alive in his day. He would have tasted and seen and heard and experienced many things others had not. And the wonder of this world filled his nostrils and his eyes and his brain. What he said was, in all of this, I marvel at the God who makes such things. You know, he, he talks about God's name because when you see a marvelous creation, it's, it's tradition to mark your name on a piece of art. I've been very hesitant to do that on mine because, you know, when you're just starting out, they're terrible. So you're like, I don't want to put my name on that just in case it's discovered later. But later on, when you get good, you start loving to put your name. And when you put your name on it, it's an, it's an act of ownership and it's an act of attribution. This is my work. I own it. And everyone will know it was me who did it. That's why artists like Banksy drive us crazy because we like the art, but we have no idea who this dude is. Who should we worship? Who should we admire? And no one really knows for sure. Our God is not like that. He's not coy. He doesn't just put up art in the middle of the night and go, let's see if they can figure out who I am. He reveals himself to us. And that's really something if you think about it. In the name of God, whenever you see, you see, notice here, the Lord is all caps. Whenever you see that in an English Bible, that's a clue to you because you see how it says, oh, Lord, all caps, like it's shouting, oh, Lord, our Lord. Do you see that, the, the difference? When you see the all caps, that always signals that what's being translated is not a name or a title, but it's the personal name of God. It's his proper name. Just like I am pastor, that's the second Lord, but I'm Dave. That's the first Lord. That's my personal name. It's what you call me. So it's been fun watching Stan make the change from calling me PD to calling me Dave. And each time he does it, I, I just, I'm, I'm trying to mess with him. I'm like, <laughs> you know, but it's that shift. You cross a bridge when you're on a first name basis with someone. And that's what God does for us. He reveals his personal name. And in Hebrew, it looks like this. It's called the Tetragrammaton because 
That's Greek for literally four-letter word. So the name of God, I know that's another association in our culture, but the name of God is a four-letter word, so holy that the vowels are unknown to us today, but it really is a way of saying, this is the personal name of God, and we represented by the English version of those consonants, Y-H-W-H. So we call it Yahweh, right? Have you heard that before? Yahweh. When you say Yahweh, you're not saying God or Lord. You're saying like his first name. It's a very personal, very similar to when we say Abba, like Daddy. It's a very intimate kind of thing. And our God reveals his personal name to us. We first came to know of this name when Moses was struggling with his calling to deliver Israel from Egypt. He was a little insecure about this assignment. And he's like, well, look, I'm going to stand. And I used to be top dog in Egypt. And now I'm going to lead the slaves out of slavery. People are going to look at me like, who are you and who sent you? And when they challenged me, who should I tell them sent me? Listen to what's recorded for us in Exodus 3, 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's I am, Yahweh, The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. When God revealed his first name, his personal name, to Moses and ultimately then to us, he crossed the threshold in our relationship with him. He said, you will no longer know me as a powerful force whom you have to appease by following laws and throwing virgins into volcanoes and doing all kinds of cutting ceremonies. You will not know me in some generic way as if I'm a cosmic force. You will now know me the way you know anyone whose name you know. You will know me as a person. And that's important to remember because when someone gives you his name, What he's signaling to you is, I want you to know me, and I want to know you. I don't want us to remain Mr. or Professor or Doctor. I want you to call me. It's like anyone else outside this church would call him Dr. Sung. We call him Ed. And on the board, we call him Eddie. No, I'm kidding. We just call him Ed. But you see, that's that's a special thing. Like To everyone else, he's Dr. Sung. To me, he's always going to be Ed, my brother. My friend. And that's a statement, isn't it? I want to try something. This week, for this whole week, nobody call me PD. Just call me Dave. I would enjoy that. I'm going to see how it makes you feel. So the God who is revealing himself is a God who wants us to know him, who's not hiding, who doesn't close his eyes or turn his back on us, even though sometimes it feels like that's what's going on. I love the way commentator Gerald Wilson put it. This is not the hidden God of the laments, but the God who displays himself to be seen in his creation. The God who wills to be known in his majesty by human beings and creation alike. 
Because in a lot of the Psalms, the leading question is, where are you? Have you ever asked that question of God? Well, somewhere in that question is also an accusation, isn't it? Where are you because you have turned your back? Feels like I'm invisible to you. And I know 100% that's exactly what it feels like. But what he says is even though it seems like I'm gone, I want to be known and I'm always there with you. Here's the second thing to know about our God. Our God doesn't just want us to know him. But this majestic God, this artist who makes the heavens and the earth, he also cares for us. Look what David says, when I look at your heavens, and what would a man that long ago in the pre-scientific era have made of the stars in the sky? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. You know, this David, who's writing this, was once a shepherd boy, and I'm sure that on many a night, he laid out on the hills with his sheep and had nothing better to do than stare at the sky and think. I'm sure as the youngest of eight boys, made to pull the night shift and watch the sheep, not allowed to sleep just in case bears or lions or wolves came. He had to stay vigilant. And I'm sure in the middle of the night, staring at the expanse of the heavens, he felt what most of us feel looking at the night sky. He felt small and insignificant. Have you ever really looked at the night sky and realized whatever was tearing your life apart, whatever was going on that seems so important, when you sit under the night sky and stare at the heavens, all of it doesn't go away, but it starts to feel like it's shrinking a little. Not because it's less painful or less important, but because your field of view just got way bigger. It's like zooming out and using a fisheye lens. And so I'm sure David, the shepherd boy, youngest of eight, looked at the sky and felt really small, awed by the idea that there's someone who could make such things. But that same David also gazed later on at the night sky from the palace roof as king of his whole nation. And that palace was huge. It would dwarf the White House, and he'd walk across that whole roof, and it was all his, built by his money at his command. And he had a massive army under his command, and he ruled an entire nation. He had an unbelievable rise in status over the course of his earthly life. That same man looked at the same night sky from a very different vantage point many years later. It's that David who wrote this psalm. And what's amazing is despite the radical change in his life situation, the night sky still had the same power to throw awe into his heart, to make him wonder, and how is it that a God who is this vast, this huge, would ever pause to pay attention to me? I know I'm the king of a nation, but what is that compared to the heavens? Can I ask you, who was the greatest king of the Medo-Persian Empire? That was a really big deal in his day. Who was he? Yeah, you don't know and you don't care, right? Puts it a little in perspective. 
Who was the 13th president of the United States? Yeah, you don't know. You don't care. It was a really big deal to him. It was a really big deal to the millions of Americans alive at the time. The point is, even when you're a king, when you look at the heavens, you're made to feel small. And you realize just how truly insignificant you are. I've had that experience, and I'm sure you have too, where you just pause and think and you realize, I am not nearly as significant as I feel I am on most days. And there are two responses, common responses, to that feeling of smallness that we get when we really think about the universe and about who God is. The first common response is despair. And despair says, I don't matter after all. And it goes on to conclude, I'm not important. And it begins to devalue itself. And there's a second common response, and that's, oh no, I do matter, and I will be important. If I look at the heavens and feel small, forget that noise, I'm going to matter at least among the fellow ants, I'll be the biggest. I will make a mark, I will leave a splash, I will do something so that when I'm done, people will remember my name, statues will be built, songs will be sung. Do you know where some of the most important people in the medieval times, it weren't the knights, it was the bards, the guys who sang the songs. Everybody brown-nosed the singers because the singers recorded your legend, true or not, in song forever. Half the people we celebrate in history were losers who had good bards who sang really good songs that made them look way better than they were. That's the truth. So there's two responses to the smallness you feel when you consider God and the vastness of the universe is despair, I don't matter, I'm not important, or defiance, I do matter, and I will be important. Neither one of those is really necessary, but they're both totally understandable. He looks at the God who makes the heavens and the earth, and he's filled with wonder because he knows that this God pays attention to him, speaks to him, hears his prayers. David was a friend of God. There was an intimate relationship between God and David. So David had no illusions. This great God also knew him, and he knew this great God. It was possible to have that kind of relationship. And it caused wonder to erupt in his heart. So rather than despair or defiance, What welled up in David's heart as he looks at the sky and considers, how is it possible that you would pay attention to us or take care of us? How is that possible? What erupts in his heart is devotion, a sense of wonder and awe and thankfulness. You know, when we're going through hardship, it's really easy to believe that God has forgotten about us. That he stopped caring. Have you ever felt like that? (laughs) I think all of us have had that experience where it feels like, why is God taking care of everyone but me? And if you grew up in a family where you were clearly not the favored kid, then you know exactly what that feels like. I don't get so unfair. Why does everybody always get special treatment and I always get the garbage? And if you start to feel that way existentially about life, You'd be depressed. 
It's so tempting in hard times to believe that God has forgotten us or abandoned us, but nothing would be further from the truth. Even when your world feels that way, your world is not the world. Remember that. I say that not to rebuke you, but to encourage you. When your world is falling apart, the world you live in is still a world in which a God lives who loves us and knows us and cares for us. He has not turned his back. He has not forgotten. And he has not abandoned. I love what God says to us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40. Listen to these words. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. I love that. He says, if you ever feel like I can't see you, or I've disregarded you, or I've forgotten you, I want you to look at the night sky again and recognize that every one of those stars burns because I tell it to. And I am paying attention, and I have not left the building. I see you. I'm still there, and I will never, ever abandon you. Let me give you one last thing. And I'm going to just ask you to do me a favor here. As I say these things, the easiest place to go is, well, I compare what you're saying to my feelings and my life, and it doesn't match. I know it probably won't in a lot of cases. But hear these words not as a description of your life and your story, but hear them as a description of a God who reveals himself to be this way. Hear them through ears of faith, not through ears of evaluation, comparing what is being said to your actual situation. And just bookmark it away because I think it's important to develop that ability to hear God and receive him this way. The third thing I want to point out, holy smokes, I'm going to be done early. I'm not sure what to do. (laughs) Is that our God values us. Someone's praying hard. Amen. Our God values us. Listen to what the psalmist David says. Yet you have made him, speaking of humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. One of the ways that you know how someone feels about us is when they entrust to you something precious to them. So you know that you've crossed a barrier, a boundary in a relationship when someone asks you to watch their baby. Now, I know it's kind of a hassle, so it's not like exactly like they're doing you a favor, but it's also a big deal when you go, look, I don't just trust anyone with my baby. Would you watch my baby? And you're like, well, no, but man, I'm honored that you'd even ask because that means you really trust me. 
Some of you all know that I'm kind of OCD about my possessions. And when I got my Honda Civic in 2016, I was like super, <laughs> you got an, I vacuumed it every day for the first six months. I never ate, not even a granola bar, nothing in the car. I didn't want it to smell. I didn't want there to be crumbs. And then one day I was out of town and Jeannie called me and said, hey, we need another car. Can one of the kids use your car? And I had no logical reason to say no, but everything was screaming, no, no, that can't happen. I'm sorry. It's unacceptable. They'll just have to walk. And I found myself saying yes. And the reason I said yes is because in that moment I realized that I value that car when I look at that car. But when I look at my son, I value him more than that car. And all I could think about was if that son of mine spills a milkshake on the seat and crashes the car while he's wiping it, I will still love him more than I will ever love that car. I don't care what he does to the car. If he's alive after that, I will be okay. And that simple act freed me. My car is disgusting now. (laughs) I lament the crossing of that threshold on one level. But I don't really care who uses my car now. It's just a thing. It's funny how that works, isn't it? When God hands over the keys to the world he has made, that's a massive act of trust, and it didn't come with guarantees. Look what we've done with it. Rivers full of slime. Entire people groups enslaved by others. Animals killed to extinction. Resources used so greedily and wastefully that some of them are about to disappear from the face of the earth. You know, when you hand over something to someone else, it's massive act of trust and honor. And sometimes they will stab you repeatedly in the back for doing it. They will make a mess of the thing you gave them. But it's amazing to me that God took that risk with us. What an act of honor it was for him to say to us, this world that I have made, I put you in charge. You will have responsibility to be my primary agents in this world to take care of everything which I have made. And in a lot of ways, we've done some marvelous things with that. In a lot of ways, we've crashed daddy's car, haven't we? The honor that God of Israel gives to human beings is striking when you compare it to the other religions of that time and in that period. One example is the creation myth of the Babylonians. It's called the Enuma Elish, and we still have preserved for us the entire text of the great Babylonian empire's story of creation. And in that story, the gods were very much like the Greek gods. They were like really jerky versions of people. It was like TMZ at a divine level, okay? I mean, you're watching like, uh, you know, what's that show, that reality show, uh, where a bunch of people live in a house, uh, big bro- some grody show like that, where just really, really low-class people are hanging out and stabbing each other in the back and creating drama. That was the gods of the ancient world. 
You read about them, you go, there are terrible versions of people with tremendous power. And after a while, the gods of Babylon got sick and tired of working because the gods of Babylon had to eat. And so they are sick of harvesting food for themselves, so they made people. People were never part of the original plan. It wasn't in the creation design. But the Babylonian gods made people because they were sick of working and said, let's make creatures who will serve us and do the stuff we hate doing. And so they made people as a plan B to compensate for their disdain of labor. What a difference that we see in the God that we worship, the one true God, and the view he has of us. We're not just assets or tools that serve him in a way that he didn't want to do that work himself. Instead, we have a God who has done everything he asks us to do, has endured everything he asks us to endure. He has felt everything we feel. And he asks us to serve him, but not just as another one of the animals, but as the only created being who's made in his likeness, carries his image, and fully exercises his authority and has his honor. The right response to such a God who values us is to value the things he values and to value him. I really believe that we Christians should be among the fiercest environmentalists. Above all others in our society, we should value the creation God has given us. Not because this will last forever, but because this was made by our God and we will not pollute it or destroy it while we are alive. I also believe that we as Christians should be the most militant in our protection and valuing of our fellow human being. That we should be the kind of people willing to risk our lives to express that other people have value and not an inherent value. That's wrong. Our value is not inherent. We don't deserve to be valued above all creation. Our value is ascribed to us by God. We have value because God valued us highly above all other things. Our value is there because God gave it to us. And so we as honorers of Jesus, followers of Christ should honor our fellow man, not just because men and women have value, but because our God who loved us, made us, saved us, values our fellow man. That's important because if you're only valuing others out of some concern for your fellow man, I promise you over time, cynicism will grow and you'll be jaded or you'll just get tired and you'll reach down and say, do I still care about my fellow man? And the honest answer over time will be, eh. I'm sort of over that. My fellow man is not terribly deserving of my valuation. My fellow man seems to do bad things every chance they get. And I'm one of them. But if we see God and value him, the value we give to him is then extended to others. And we say, God, because this is your car. And this is the thing. I know my sons and my daughter, when they drive my car, they drive differently than when they drive my wife's car. I know because when they drive my wife's car, the gas mileage goes down by 
three or four miles per gallon. But they know that I am neurotic about this. I drive my car like it's a Prius. I'm just watching. And sometimes when I get the car after they've used it, the gas mileage crept up by 0.1. And I think that reflects something to me. They respected not the car, but they respected their dad. That really makes me feel honored, opens my heart to them. It makes me trust them more. That's the way we ought to value and care for creation and for our fellow human being. Because God cares for us and he cares for the things he's made. He set us in a place of honor over those things. We should take that very, very seriously. Pastor and writer A.W. Tozer once said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I totally believe that's true. You can have a lot of strong feelings and assessments about what the world is like, what life is like, even what God is like. But all of those ultimately rise out of what you believe God is like. If you even for a minute believe that we have a God who occasionally forgets us, devalues us, stops caring for us, turns his back on us. If you even for a minute believe or allow in your worldview that such a God could exist, there's no place but despair for you to go. We don't decide what God is like by looking at our lives. We understand our lives by looking at what God says he's like. That's the right order of things. And so we begin the series in Psalms by beholding a God who is majestic beyond our imagining, who with words created the heavens and the earth, everything there is. And this great artist, this great creator, he wants us to know him. And he knows us. He thinks about us. He cares for us. And he values us and sets us in a place of honor and great responsibility. I don't know what's happening in your life or how you feel about the way things are going. But I want to encourage you with these words of truth. That is reality. This is our God. This is the world, the universe in which you live and the God to whom you cry out even in your day of trouble. I'm going to invite us to bow. I want you to think about what you picture when you close your eyes and think of God. What ideas about God have you entertained in your heart and in your mind? If you start with an inaccurate and untrue picture of God, everything in your faith after that will be colored the wrong way. So we begin where God introduces himself to us. He says to you, I may look unapproachable and impossibly far away, but I am right here with you. I want you to know me and I care for you and I value and honor you. 
this is our God, no matter what you're going through. That's where it needs to begin for us. So I'm going to leave you with that thought and invite you to pray in the presence of such a God. And after a minute or two of silence, I'd like us to sing a song together to respond to him. Each one of us is more rich and complex than what an email or a journal entry might reveal. Aren't you glad that our God is greater than just what our lives might reveal? That there's more to him than our own experience can describe. And what we believe about God matters because ultimately it shapes what we believe about our own lives. So behold a God who is greater than you will ever be able to understand. And yet this great God, this majestic God, wants you to know him. And he cares for you and loves you. And he values you. He has not forgotten you. He will never abandon you. Rest in this no matter what is happening. And no matter what you feel, know that this is true. This is our God. May this be the firm ground on which we stand. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.